What is up, Cyber and Crypto homies? Hope everybody's having a great day. Today is Friday, May the 24th of 2019. This is episode 73 of the Cybersecurity and Cryptocurrency Podcast. I'm your host, Eric English. All the views and opinions expressed in this show are solely my opinion and do not reflect that of my employer. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at CyberCryptoGuy, at CyberCryptoGuy on Twitter. Hit me up on there. So I wanted to do a a podcast today to talk about a couple of different topics that keep popping up and I keep getting a lot of questions about. So I figured I'd do a podcast and hopefully this helps somebody out there with maybe they're experiencing some of the same issues that I am and hopefully some of the things that I've learned and figured out how to fix can help somebody else as well. So the first thing I wanted to touch on was single sign-on. Uh, If you're not familiar with single sign-on, it's basically one place that you have to log into. From there, you can get into numerous other applications without having to have a separate password. So this is great for companies that have, you know, a lot of cloud-based stuff, and they're trying to remember 10 different passwords to get into all these systems. Well, the single sign-on kind of solves that for you. The issues with single sign-on are that if it's cloud-based, guess what? It's always online, so it's always being attacked. That is a huge risk, and it's a continuing threat. For example, uh, we've noticed about in the range of forty to 50,000 failed login attempts from all around the world on our single sign-on system that is cloud-hosted. There's no way in hell we've all of our employees are failing to log in that many times in a month. Uh, Those are pretty staggering numbers. But that just tells you how often hackers are trying to do password spray attacks on these types of environments. It is nonstop. Nonstop. So if you're looking to move to a single sign-on system and you're worried about it, just like I am, what can you do to help protect yourselves as best as you can. There's a couple of different things, and obviously it depends on who you get single sign-on with. Um, I'm familiar with Okta primarily. It's OKTA. If you're not familiar with them, uh, go check them out on their website. The funny thing is, with all these single sign-on providers that I've looked at, you know, there's Duo, there's Okta, there's several others out there too. All of these folks don't have any sort of security controls for these failed login attempts. And I've been griping about this for quite a while with Okta saying, come on guys, you got to give me something, some way to help prevent these attacks. So really the only things you can do now uh, are to enable GOIP blocking. So that way nobody can log in from out of the country or you only allow certain countries. Like if you If you do business overseas, then obviously you would allow people to log in from that country. Otherwise, you would block those off. So any attempts coming from any foreign countries that you don't allow would immediately be blocked. So that's probably the best mitigation, just to kind of start things off. Obviously, two-factor is really where you want to be with everything that you do. It's not always easy to convince everybody that they need to have two-factor there's a lot of 
you know, nagging and crying and pushing and screaming when you try to get people to use two-factor. But that is the primary way to protect yourselves and protect your environment. So some of the other risks, if you think about it, single sign-on, if somebody gets into or compromises a single sign-on account, they would then have access to all of the applications that that particular account has access to. So if you compromise an account that has access to 10 different applications, boom, hackers now have access to all 10 of those applications. So it's super scary. And some of the other things that we've been looking at doing and actually already started doing is for specific apps that have sensitive data. Yes, you can single sign on and then uh, you see all your apps and you can click on one. If that one we've deemed has sensitive data in it, we do prompt for an additional factor. So we have sort of mitigated that at least a little bit uh, with the more sensitive data that we have in those cloud applications with our single sign-on. So that's another thing you can do. And if you're not already doing this, two-factor for admins is, is pretty much the only thing that you should be doing right off the bat. Two-factor for admins, no matter what, on any cloud-based system whatsoever. Not just single sign-on. Anything at your company that is cloud-based and you're an admin of, or whoever is an admin of it, they need to be using two-factor to get into that. doesn't matter what it is. And Okta, for example, recently started enforcing that as well. Uh, so you don't really get a choice now. If you're an Okta admin, you now have to two-factor to get into it which is great. I like that. So they're making strides in the right direction. They also just released a feature here in the last couple of weeks where, you know, obviously they see all these failed login attempts, right? And so they're, they're keeping track of these now and they're able to determine which ones are malicious. And now they're going to start blocking those in real time. So that is going to be a great step up from where we've been, uh, especially with all those failed logins per month. You know, that's staggering numbers. But hopefully with these IPs being blocked that uh, Okta sees as malicious will really help prevent even more account compromises. So we're getting in, you know, towards the right direction, not quite all the way there. There's no analytics behind it. Unfortunately, you can't see what all they're blocking yet. Uh, They just rolled out that feature, but I'm happy to to see that. Just wish there was a little more behind it so I could actually see how much is really getting blocked by them. I'm sure it'll come up eventually and they'll release some sort of report that you can run for it. But as of right now, I'm just happy that we've got an additional tool in our belt to help block all these bad sign-in attempts. So anyway, if if you've ever looked at single sign-on stuff, those are some things you want to be cautious of and be cognizant of and make sure that you're okay with those before you start implementing something like that. On the user side, the experience is great, right? Because the end user gets to log in once and boom, they've got access to everything they need, which is great for the end user. But again, it's great for a hacker too. (laughs) So uh, anyway, Other uh, topic I wanted to touch on today, uh, and again, this podcast is going to be all cybersecurity uh, primarily, 
But Office 365 seems to be a, a common topic that keeps popping up. And how do you secure that? You know, account compromises happen on Office 365 all the time as well. And it is rampant. And, you know, it's just like with Okta, right? There's password spraying attacks happening constantly because Office 365 is cloud-based. And hackers can just sit there all day long and do password spray attacks until they eventually get into something. And with all the breaches and password leaks, there's plenty of databases of passwords that the hackers can try and use in those password spraying attacks. So being that it's cloud-based, it's a constant target as well. So if you're thinking about Office 365 or any cloud-based system, really, just remember it's always going to be a target because it's, it's cloud-based and it's sitting right there on the internet. It's an easy target. So as with any other system, like I said previously, if you're an admin for Office 365, you should be using two-factor no matter what. That should be a de facto standard on any and all cloud applications that administrators are using. Make sure they all have two-factor set up. Uh, aside from that, there are a lot of flaws with Office 365. Last episode, I talked about the integrations with OneDrive and how you can't really turn off OneDrive without affecting numerous other products in Office 365. So those integrations are nice, when you need them, but if you're trying to turn those off for security reasons, it breaks a lot of other things. So that's certainly a drawback there. You can't separate those out as of right now, and that's unfortunate because I'd love to lock down those applications that we don't use. Unfortunately, we can't. And Microsoft, out of the box, they really don't offer a lot of security for their online platform. It is very much, you have to figure out what security you want to implement, and they don't have a lot of tools out there already to help you implement this kind of thing. And they certainly don't have any tools to help you remediate a, you know, a phishing email that went out to half the company. There's no way to go into 365 and pull that email. Microsoft recommends that you use a PowerShell script. Well, that's great and all, but the PowerShell commands can take, oh, you know, an hour or two, depending on how many people receive the email and how many mailboxes you have to go through. Uh, essentially, the script goes through each and every mailbox and looks for a specific email with a particular message ID or a subject line or a sender, whichever you decide to uh, search for, and it'll quarantine that message. So that's great and all, but if you've got a huge user base, those scripts can take hours. And that's just not practical. That means that that malicious email is sitting in those people's mailboxes for hours. And the likelihood of somebody else clicking and entering data on the next uh, or on one of those emails is, is very high because it's sitting there and you, ha you don't have the ability to quarantine it as fast as you need to. So that is a very big problem. And it's extremely hard to remediate those. So there's a couple different ways that you can, and different spam filtering companies are, are starting to get in on this a little better too. Uh, like Proofpoint, for example, Mimecast is another one. They do what's called journaling, and they basically they can see all the internal emails through that journaling process. 
So what does that mean? So if you, let's say you use Mimecast. Well, Mimecast is going to be in front of Office 365. So all your mail is going to hit Mimecast first so they can do the filtering, right? From there, it gets pushed into Office 365, as it should. Same thing goes for Proofpoint. It would be sitting outside or in front of Office 365. And the journaling capabilities, so any, so any internal emails, when you have those spam filters sitting in front of or outside of Office 365, all internal emails would not go through that spam filter, if you think about it. It would just stay in Office 365. So if an internal phishing email goes out from a compromised account, Proofpoint or Mimecast wouldn't be able to see that at least in previous years. Now they're doing this thing called journaling, which allows them to see the internal email as well and then take actions on that. Uh, Proofpoint does have an application called TRAP. It's threat Response Auto Pull is what it stands for. It actually goes out to the mailboxes for you and quarantines those messages for you. Uh, Mimecast has a very similar product. I don't remember the name offhand, but they do have an much faster capability of quarantining these messages than going through and running PowerShell commands. I have also seen here recently there's some pretty cool uh, new spam filtering companies that are starting to put the filtering in the same cloud as Office 365 as a plug-in, which is certainly interesting. That way it's not sitting out in front of it or outside of Office 365, it's all in the same cloud. So even internal email would get filtered that way as well. So there are a few companies doing that. I don't know of a lot of them as far as you know reputation goes and how good they actually are. That part I don't know, but I have seen a lot of those popping up here recently. So that's certainly something to investigate as well. One of the biggest threats to Office 365 is really mind-boggling to me. Every time you create a new account on Office 365, they require you, Microsoft requires an additional email alias for that user, and you cannot disable it. You don't have the capability to turn it off or disable it. And what they do is it's a on Microsoft.com address, so it would be you know, Eric at yourdomain.onmicrosoft.com. And obviously, you'd still have your primary email address, right? Well, the problem with that, I don't own onmicrosoft.com. I don't have access to the DNS records. I can't go out there and tell it where to point the email. I can't go tell it to point the email at my spam filter first. So here's the problem. If it doesn't go to the spam filter, guess where it goes? It goes directly to Office 365, basically making your spam filter completely useless. And the fact that you can't disable this is just, it's infuriating and mind-boggling that Microsoft won't allow you to turn these off. So what do you have to do to fix it? That's always the biggest question, and I struggled with that for probably six or eight months trying to figure out how to get this thing, how to get these emails blocked. So essentially you got to set up a mail flow rule. And what you do is basically any incoming email, uh, incoming to Office 365, that is, not into Proofpoint or Mimecast or whoever, any inbound email 
to Office 365. And the to address, not the from address, but the to address is, you know, eric at yourdomain.onmicrosoft.com or eric at yourdomain.mail.onmicrosoft.com. Reject those messages and discard them or do whatever you want to uh, after you reject those messages. That was the only way I figured out how to block these. I tried all kinds of different variations. I tried, you know, telling Office 365 mail flow rules to look for on Microsoft.com in the email headers. That did not work. I had to tell it to use the to field. So that was the trick. I tried every other combination under the sun using the headers, and none of it worked. It was still bypassing our spam filter. But now that I've got that set up in, in 365 and our mail flow rules, we are officially able to block those on Microsoft.com addresses. It was a royal headache, and it was a huge threat because hackers could just go right around the spam filter. And they knew it, too. And that, that was the biggest target. They would just go right around it, send it right to that on Microsoft.com address, and boom, it gets delivered. So that's always the biggest flaw with Office 365. So if you're considering moving to it, you got to think about all the risks, right? There's tons. And there are ways to mitigate some of the risks, but there will still be other risks. So some of the other stuff we did, we turned off uh, POP3, we turned off IMAP. Uh, previously, IMAP accounts were able to bypass two-factor. So we turned that off. Uh, we also enforced modern authentication so that older email clients uh, would not work. And it actually forces people to go through and do the two-factor stuff as well. So there's a lot of things you can do to help harden that environment. But there are still some risks there that you need to be aware of. So uh, I did write a blog on all the different hardening steps that I did. So I'll post that in the show notes if you want to check that out. It has kind of the how-to and links to various uh, articles on, on how to set this stuff up. The last thing I wanted to touch on today was all the different security standards out there, like NIST, PCI. If you're in the banking world, it's FFIEC. You know, whatever it is, HIPAA, there's all kinds of different security standards out there, right, based on industry. And it's funny because a lot of companies looking for, you know, to hire somebody, let's say they're looking to hire somebody in healthcare, and the person that they want to hire has to be HIPAA, whatever, you know, have to know everything about HIPAA. I, I disagree with that because most of these security standards are very, very similar as far as concepts go. The concepts don't change. You know, you're still blocking certain things. You still have to set up certain rules. You still have to do things a certain way. Obviously, different standards have more strict controls that you have to implement, like PCI is much more strict. But overall, security is security. It doesn't matter the standard that you're using. The controls are still the same. So just because somebody doesn't know all about HIPAA doesn't mean that they wouldn't be good at it. Uh, if they're familiar with NIST, they would probably be pretty good at HIPAA as well. They just may not know all the exact wording uh, in the HIPAA rules. 
And all these companies that just say, oh, you have to have this, it just boggles my mind. They're missing out on on great candidates that, you know, if you're familiar with NIST and you're familiar with security, you could be a great candidate for that kind of stuff. Same thing goes with PCI or uh, if you're in banking, FFIEC. You know, there's all kinds of different standards. Security is security. It never changes based, I mean, based on the different business types or whatever it is, security is security. It doesn't change. There's just different rules from all these different security guidances or security standards out there. So if you're looking to hire somebody and they're not an expert at HIPAA, like the example I gave earlier, but they're familiar with NIST and they're, you know, they have some good cybersecurity experience, they'd probably still be a good candidate to work on HIPAA stuff. Sure, there'd be a little learning curve, learning all the various nuances of HIPAA, but nonetheless, they could still be a great candidate. So don't leave people out like that. Security is security. It doesn't matter what type of standard it is. It's still security in the end. All right, folks, that's all I've got for today. I just wanted to kind of run through those topics here before the long weekend. And uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at CyberCryptoGuy, at CyberCryptoGuy on Twitter. Check me out on there. I retweet a bunch of the articles that we talk about here on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and have a great weekend.